Take your Bibles and find your way to Paul's first epistle in the Scriptures, uh, uh, Romans. Romans, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today. I've just, I was trying to think of a really great title, and I, I just kept coming back to this one today. Our Only Plea. Our Only Plea. Um, I do a lot of funerals. I did five in December. Um, funerals of people I don't know. And the reason I'm doing their funerals, it usually falls in one or two places. And I had both in December. People who have very strong roots in Macon. It's where they want to be laid to rest. But have been gone for a long time. And previous pastors and whatnot are also gone out of the area. can't do the funeral. I get called in to do that. I prefer those. Because the other kind is people who grew up lived in this area an entire lifetime and have no church background, no faith, no family, nothing when it comes to the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what you hear when you talk to the family. Jay, you've heard this when you talk to families. Jay does the same thing down Warren Robbins that I do up here. What do they tell you about that person? Well, he was a really good guy. Or she was a really good lady. I, I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I could retire. But good by whose standard, right? We had to, we had to define that. So, um, God's given me the privilege this last few months to teach my way through Paul's letter of to the Roman church with uh, about 40 10th graders, if you can imagine what that's like. Four days a week, two hours a day, <laughs> teaching through Romans. Um, and I became very convinced of my sin um, doing that um, just because of the, the setting and, and the frustration that I felt welling up inside of me. <laughs> but also there was a second part of that, and it was the great joy of living in this amazing letter for the time uh, that I was forced to do that. And it was, a good, it was good for me. Um, I watched something at my house the other night. I couldn't hardly believe my eyes. Um, Zach Sr. was sitting on the couch and Little Zach Jr. was over there by him. We've been thoroughly enjoying them this week. And Ashley, his wife, comes out and hands the little guy a pretty good-sized pill. And I'm thinking, okay, I, what, what? this kid can swallow pills? And Zach says, oh, I, I hate this part. And she gives the, this pill capsule to the little guy, and he puts it in his mouth and starts chewing it. And, and inside of that capsule was some kind of dehydrated liver, Right? Exactly. That's my reaction. Like, whoa. And the kid loves it. He absolutely loves it because he, he, he's, his only experience with it is a positive one. And his taste buds have been trained to love that dehydrated liver, which is phenomenal for your health. Right? But the reason it's in a capsule is his mom has not graduated to 
her son's love of the liver. <laughs> so she swallows it, which is exactly what I would do. Right? But I watch that little guy sit there and chew that up like you and I would chew a piece of Godiva chocolate. Right? I know, Tom, right? It's, it's, a, it's amazing. Can I tell you something? It's hard sometimes to get a taste for God's word. Because there's a lot in here that's going to rub you the wrong way. And let me tell you what I've learned over the years. Get into it anyway. Go teach two 10th grade classes four days a week for two hours on Romans. Right? Sometimes it's a little bit like swallowing that liver pill. But boy, I tell you what, there's so much good that comes out of that, and you learn to love it. So we got to spend the time in there. And I got to do that, and, I, and I'm very thankful. Um, I'm very thankful for the, the time I've had to do that this year and what it's brought about in my life. So let me give you a quick little background, and then we're going to jump in here. Um, one of the things is that Paul did not start the church at Rome. It was started by someone who came back as a pilgrim to the day of Pentecost, which was the feast. They, they, they were there when Peter preached his great message after the Holy Spirit fell. They fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of their sin, that Jesus was actually the Messiah, and he was crucified, dead, buried, but resurrected on the third day. They repented of their sin. They were granted faith by God, and they came back to their city of Rome very different. And as they came back, they started to share the good news of the king. People started to respond, and these little house churches popped up. And they were all over Rome in the first century. There was about a million people living in Rome. Um, more than 50% of them were either slaves or very poor. And one of the issues in the Roman church, and I just want to share this with you so what you we're about to hear, we understand what Paul's doing, is the Caesar before the one, before Nero, um, he had a belly full of the Jews. He, he got tired of dealing with the Jews in Rome. And finally, he just kicked them all out. He said, all, right, all of you, every, if you're a Jew, you're evicted. Get out of Rome. And, and they had to. So that first church that was started there in Rome was Gentiles and Jews. All the Jews get kicked out for five years. And the reason it's five years, because five years later that Caesar dies, Nero comes to power, and they all start trickling back into Rome. Does that make sense? Now can you imagine what has happened to that church, those little house churches, in five years with just Gentiles? Do you think, it, do you think the climate changed a little bit? You think the culture changed a little bit? Yeah, it changed a lot. And they were having issues, which you would expect. As the Jews came back and asserted themselves, the Christian Jews, and came back and said, okay, let's do life together again, and all these issues popped up. Paul's reason for writing was really not to address those issues as much as to present to this church that he's never visited what he preaches and believes as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and here's why. He tells us later in the letter. He wants them to help him financially get to Spain and share the gospel. So his whole plan was, I'm going to come visit you finally, and I'm, I'm hoping that we'll have some great fellowship. I want to I strengthen you in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and when I'm done, 
I'm hoping y'all will help me out and support me as I go take the good news of Jesus Christ to Spain. Many of you will know it doesn't work that way. He does get to Rome, but he gets to Rome in Roman chains. He gets to Rome as a prisoner. And uh, though he would be released for a short time and then re-arrested and put back into house arrest, um, he would never leave Rome. He would actually die there, executed by Nero. Um, he never makes it to Spain. If he'd have made it to Spain, by the way, all of church history would be very, very different than it is now. The whole, all of history would be very different, I believe. But that was not God's plan. So all of that to say, this is where we find ourselves. In a church that got some people that are knocking heads because things have changed so much and they're trying to figure out how to do life together. And Paul begins his letter to the Romans with a long discussion, listen to this, of the doctrine of human sin. He goes, let me, I know you guys are having a hard time with each other. <laughs> let me tell you something. Let me tell you what you got in common, first of all, is your sin. If you're a Jew or Gentile, you both got a sin problem. And for nearly three chapters, he's been slowly building to this great climax, this, this great prosecuting attorney, and he lays out the facts one by one. And you see up there, the thesis of his case is this, is that the whole world is under the wrath of God. And we see that in Romans 1, 18. God's wrath abides on the whole world because of sin. That's his point in chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. That's fact number one, is that, uh, is that the Gentiles are guilty. We see that in verse 18 through 32 of chapter 1. He deals with the Gentiles first. And then all of you pagans, all the pagans are guilty before God. And he lays it out. And he talks, he, na he, he names the sins they're guilty of. And then fact number two is the moralists are guilty. Now these are people who are just, they're not straight out pagans. They actually are very moral. We would put in parentheses good people. Trying to do right, be right, even live by God's standards. But they're guilty. And we see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Then Paul turns his guns on the Jews. Now the Jews were the moralists, but they were the moralists with the law, the revelation from God. They had the Bible of their day. And they're guilty. And we see that in chapter 2, 17 to 29. Matter of fact, Paul ends up saying, <laughs> we're going to see it this morning. Matter of fact, you Jews might be worse off than the pagan Gentiles. Because you had the Word of God, and you still rebelled against God. So, um, fact number four, there, no excuses are going to be accepted. So, Paul takes the whole world, and he puts them under, he examines them by the law of God. And he says, no one's going to have any excuse. So, now the time has come for the final arguments, and, and then the case goes to jury. So, Paul stands to speak. I can imagine him looking at his notes, pauses for a moment, and then he begins. His first basic charge is restated in chapter 3 and verse 9. Then the final proof is offered in verses 10 through 18, and then the inescapable verdict is read and reached in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. And that's what we're going to look at today. But we're not going to end with that. I'm going to share with you the good news at the very end. All right? So there's great news 
And that's really, I want to get through this first part in order to get to the last part, which will be very brief, the last part. But it's, it's where all of this is driving. So first of all, look at the charge. Number one is the charge. And we see this in verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul says this, what then? So he's asking a rhetorical question. What then are we, when he says we, he's talking about Jews, are we better than they? Now, who's, if, if, if we are Jews, who's they? Gentiles, everybody who's not a Jew. Pretty easy categories, right? Are we, are we Jews better than those Gentiles over there? And, and he answers the question, not at all. Literally, no way. Why? For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. There is the charge. You're under sin. Now, okay, so I'm under sin. What's that mean? It's an interesting word, that phraseology, under sin. It's a military term. And it, it means to be under the authority of someone else, following the orders of someone in authority over you. It was used of soldiers who were under the authority of a commanding officer. It means to control someone else or something else. And in this case, it means that the human race is under the domination of sin. I think of it this way. It is the empire of sin. So when he says the main charge is that we're all under sin, we are all under the empire, the ruling authority of sin. And there's no way outside of Christ to escape it. And this is what Paul's reminding the Jews and Gentile believers as they're struggling to figure out what life looks like in the church as the Jews come back home. Sin is their number one problem. And by the way, it's our number one problem. Amen, Dale? It really is. It's, it's not the symptom. Sin is the disease itself. And all of us are infected by it. And any solution to the human problem problem of sin that doesn't deal with the sin question is like putting a band-aid on cancer. So Paul's going to remind them, your main, our main problem, whether you're Jew or Gentile, is a sin problem. And then Paul's going to give the proof. And I want to run through these as quickly as I might be able to here in the next few verses, because Paul lays out a harsh, albeit true and accurate picture of the human race. He tells it like it is. And he does it by stringing together a, a several Old Testament passages of Scripture. Um, and we see this word pop up quite a bit here. This whole little section that we're going to go into when Paul lays the proofs out for his charges. He's saying, as it is written in verse 10. And when you take it together, they establish his point beyond all dispute. So he's going back to the Word of God, the Old Testament. It is, think about it this way, it is Scripture piled upon Scripture piled upon Scripture. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And eventually, Paul's point breaks through even to the hardest of human hearts. Sin has not only affected every person, it is, listen, it has affected every part of every person. Did you catch that? It hasn't just affected every person. Listen, it's affected every part of every person. And that's Paul's point, using Scripture. So if you've ever said to yourself or out loud or to somebody else, I'm not that bad. In fact, I'm a pretty good person. Then let's read these verses and then I want to see how you feel about that. All right. So, so let's look at this real quick. Um, and, and I just kind of laid this out in kind of a hopefully a, a, an easy way to understand it. First of all, I see Paul says, 
sin is in our character. We have sin in our character. He says there in verse 10, he says, as it is written, there it is, there is none righteous, no, not one. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean that God looks over the entirety of the human race, past, present, and future, and he can't find one person that is righteous? And the answer is correct. And Paul repeats himself through the Old Testament scriptures, revelation of God, no, not one, not even one. You know, what he, you know what that means? Let me just bring that down. That means not even you. That's what you should write in there. Not even me. Or what I wrote in my Bible, especially not you, Paul. <laughs> He's pointing that out. And it's not you either. Amen? There's none right. We, we have sin in our, has, has infected and affected and affected our very character. Number two, sin in our mind. Look at verse number 11. We get sin in our character, sin in our mind. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. We don't get God. Why? Because we don't try. Natural man doesn't want to get God. We got our own ideas, and we would very much like God to leave us alone. Amen? We're all teenagers in effect. We have our own ideas, and we would like all authority to leave us alone and let us live our life. Because we know, we know what's what. Right? And in actuality, if you're a parent, you know that their biggest problem is that they don't know what they don't know. Amen? And we're the same way. There's none to understand. Then it goes on to say, there's none that seeks after God. And that little phraseology or seeks after God, again, this comes out of the Old Testament too. It doesn't just mean, you know, think about God once in a while. This means to passionately pursue something in order to understand it. And what God is saying here is no one chasing me. There's no one even trying to understand. It's the thing I tell my Latin students. Failure with effort is acceptable. Failure without effort is not. At least try. Work at it. And if, and if you're working at it, you can leave with, with, a, with a low grade and high character. But there's sin in our mind. Our thinking is, is messed up by sin. And it's not that we can't understand. It's that we won't and we don't want to. We're chasing the wrong things. It gets worse. There's sin in our heart. There's sin in our heart, verse 12. It gets way worse, Dale. Hang on. And here's what Paul's saying. Again, right out of the Old Testament, he's piling Scripture on Scripture. They have all turned aside. How many have turned aside? All. They have together, as a group, become unprofitable. That word literally means rotten. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Right? I think of Isaiah 53. We've all gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned aside. It means to turn away from the road, the path of righteousness. We all got off of that as fast as we could find an exit. And that's what he's telling us here. And they become unprofitable. That word means spoiled, worthless. Here's the reality. 
What starts in, in the character goes to the mind, and what is in the mind ends up where? In the heart. We got sin in our heart, the core of our life. The whole human race is turned aside from God. And I know, even as you read this, it's not, it's not fun to hear it. Right? You hear, you know, I don't like that. I like to think there's some part of me that's good. I don't like this idea that we've all gone bad in the eyes of God. It's true. Concerning doing good, Paul says, God says, there's no one. Concerning doing evil, everyone. <laughs> when I say everybody's doing it, it's true. We all got a sin problem. And this is what Paul's reminding them of, both sides. And this is going to bring them together. Here's the next one. We got sin in our lips. Sin in our lips, verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open, open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, that's a cobra, is under their lips. In verse 14, uh, it gets better. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. We have sin in our lips. We have sin in our character which affects our mind where sin is, and it comes down to our heart. And but how many of you know what's in the heart eventually comes out what? I like how J. Vernon McGee, the old West Texas preacher, would say, he said, uh, he said uh, what is in the well of the heart will eventually be drawn up through the bucket of the mouth. Amen. Ain't that true? And some buckets are bigger than others. I'm just going to leave that one hanging there, Dale. <laughs> Isn't it true? What's in your heart eventually finds its way out of your mouth. We reveal who we are by what we say. And he shows, Paul shows now that, this, that sin has infected the various parts of the human body, starting with the organs of speech. Look at, he uses four different words for the various organs of speech. There's throats, tongues, lips, and mouths. Each one of these is showing how thoroughly sin affects the things that we say. How many of you, well, every hand should go up. How many of us has said some stuff that we sure wish we'd go back in time and take those stupid things back? Oh, I have nightmares about a few of the things I've said. He reminded us. That outside of Christ, we are thoroughly corrupt. That word corrupt is the idea of rotting flesh. The throats are an open grave. And if you've never experienced that, which I hope you never get to, uh, that's, that's a bad deal. Deceitful tongues that practice deceit. Purposeful evil. Purposeful harm. It's called malice. Uncharitable, the poison of vipers, of asps, is under our lips and blasphemous, mouths full of cursing and bitterness. So we don't just sin with our mouth, though. We sin with our feet, verses 15 to 17. It's not just what we say, it's what we do. Look what the Scripture says in verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways the way they go about living. And verse 17, in the way of peace, they have not known. Brothers and sisters, if that's, not, if that's not a picture of America in 2023, I don't know what is. Right? We are swift 
to shed blood. I praise God for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I hope you do too. I should have pulled the numbers up, but I saw a stat recently of how many uh, lives have been saved since Roe v. Wade was overturned. It's thousands. Thousands upon thousands of little babies getting a chance at life. It's wonderful. But here's the thing. The law can't fix the human heart. Why is there such a thing as abortion in the first place? It's because our feet are swift to shed blood. Right? We are so fat. Destruction and misery. How many of you know left to ourselves? Destruction and misery. We're going to leave destruction and misery in our wake. Haven't we watched that with people that we love? Their lives just destroyed and misery. Oh, it's terrible. And why? Because they'd rather have destruction and misery than peace. That's what Paul's saying here. We are so committed to our sinful ways, we would choose destruction and misery over the peace that comes from living a righteous life in Christ. You say, people really do that? Yeah, they do. We would do that were it not for Jesus Christ. Amen? Blasphemous, mouths full of cursing and bitterness. We sin with our feet. And then lastly here, we sin with our eyes. Verse 18 Paul kind of wraps it up. I think he takes all these charges, these proofs, and he says it all comes down to this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. Why do I got to sin in my character, sin in my mind, sin in my heart, sin that bubbles out of my mouth, and sin that causes my feet to run so I can do some more sin? What, what, why? Why? What's, what's wrong? What's wrong is that I don't fear God. All of those are symptoms. The core is the sin of a lack of a fear of Almighty God. I like how the Living Bible puts it. Living Bible says this, They care nothing about God or what He thinks about them. Isn't that true? They don't care anything about God, and, and, and we don't care what He thinks about us. Because when men reject God, listen to me, they lose everything. They lose their minds. Natural man is insane by nature. Oh, yeah, how many times I sit around have coffee with Tom or even at, out on a date with my wife, just talking with people at the water cooler. There are no water coolers anymore. We all have our own bottles, but you know what I mean. How many times have you talked to people and said, the world's lost its mind. We got men competing in women's sports and taking everything. How, how, we've lost our minds. We're encouraging children to have life-altering surgeries without the consent of parents. We've lost our collective minds because natural man is insane. No fear of God simply means living as if God doesn't exist. It's practical atheism. We ignore God's ways. We flout His commands. We disregard His word. And we violate statutes. And for natural man, God might as well not exist. So little thought does He give to the sovereign of the universe. And when you... 
take these six statements together, they become the most damning indictment imaginable. Sin in our character, sin in our mind, sin in our heart, sin in our lips, sin in our feet, sin in our eyes. Sin has so infected and affected every part of our being. What is that called? Well, it's the historical Reformation Protestant doctrine of total depravity. We are totally depraved outside of Christ. Now, to say that man is totally depraved is not to say that he is as bad as he can be, right? It means that sin has affected every part of his being, his mind, his motions, his will, his intellect, his moral reasoning, his decision-making, and his words and his deeds. That's what it means. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but that we're, we're infected and affected. There is no part of natural man's being that is exempt from the debilitating effects of sin. I'll put it this way. If someone said, if sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. Right? Part, would be, part of us would be dark blue. Part would be light blue. Some would be sky blue. Royal blue. But every part would be blue in one shade or another. Does it make more sense that way? We are all infected and affected wholly, totally by sin. So what is the final verdict? Now we come to the end. Paul's final summation to the jury. The evidence is in. The charge has been presented. The indictment's been read and proven. And now comes the conclusion. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, don't miss this, that every mouth may be what? Stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. That's it. The gavel comes down in the courtroom of the universe and God declares mankind guilty. And you know what you're going to have to say for yourself on that day? Absolutely nothing. It's going to be the quietest that the universe has ever been. Every mouth will be stopped. And all are guilty before God. But what's the point? The point of this whole thing is verse 20. And you can't miss it. And remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Jews. He's talking to moral Gentiles. He's talking to immoral Gentiles. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God never intended you to be right with Him by keeping the law. Instead, the law is a mirror that shows you how not right with Him you are. And when you look in the mirror and you got grease on your face, you don't take the mirror off the wall and clean it, do you? I mean, that's silly. That's dumb. It's not even effective, right? No, that's not the purpose of a mirror. The purpose of a mirror is to show you what you look like. 
And then there's water and soap to wash with. Amen? Except we wash and are washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to remember in a minute together. We're all guilty. And then verse 21 is that no one can be saved by keeping the law. Because by the law is the knowledge of sin. I like how J.B. Phillips says it. He says, the law, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Isn't that true? It is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we really are. So here's a reality. I want you to ponder this for a minute. Salvation begins with silence. Salvation begins with silence. I was getting on to one of my children the other day. I won't name names, but his initials are Jack. And Jack's got, I've, I've allowed Jack to get in some bad habits. And one of them is debating and presenting his case when I'm trying to give my verdict. And we have a little saying. I'm trying to teach him. When my mouth is moving, yours is not. And one of the, one of the things I'm teaching him is, you need to learn to be quiet and accept the authority of someone over you. Be quiet and listen. I've heard everything I need to hear. You've really got nothing left. Everything you say from here on out can and will be used against you. <laughs> you are not helping yourself. Your words are, are bringing more damage to your case. The best thing you can do is be quiet. You have the right to remain silent. I suggest you use it and exercise that right. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All the way up to this point, Paul is saying, y'all are going about it the wrong way. Half of you aren't trying and don't care, and you're running as far and as fast as you can away from God. The other half are trying to be good and do good. And what you don't realize is you're using the, a mirror to take a bath, and that's, you got it backwards. The mirror only tells you you need a bath. All of you are wrong. Oh, but let me tell you what, there is a way to be right have perfect standing before God, and listen, it's, it's separate from the law. The law can't do it. And I'm not telling you anything new. It is, it is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Now, when he says the law and the prophets, every time you see that, what you need to think is the Old Testament. The law was the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Penta meaning five, the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law. The prophets are everything after it, all the way to Malachi. Okay? So he's saying the entire Old Testament has been shouting this to you for millennia. But you've determined to do it your own way. And you, you haven't heard, but I'm not telling you anything new. And then Paul shares with us the promise in verses 21 through 26. Oh, there is a way to be right with God, and it's, out, it's outside, apart, it's separate from the law. And after what he just put us through in the courtroom, and said, by the law, you're all in trouble. 
You're all guilty before God, and you got nothing to say, but there's good news. By the time he's done with this court case, we're all hopeless. Verse 21, we're all hopeful. He turns it around. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says this, Even the righteousness of God through faith. This is the promise. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who keep the law. Is that what it says? Ah, to all and on all who believe. There it is. It's trusting, not working. Who believe. For there's no difference. And he's, now he's going back to the Jew Gentile. They're, they're in a dime's worth of difference between the two of you. Why? Because all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, and you've all fallen short of God's glorious standard, the glory of God. None of you are making it. Verse 24, being justified freely. How much does this cost? It's free, nothing. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Now that's a word we don't use, but propitiation basically means the satisfying of wrath. Because remember, God is ticked off at sin, and righteously so. And Jesus satisfied the righteous requirement of God against sin. But the other part of propitiation is bringing two parties together who were, who were once enemies and now making them family. It's bringing together two estranged parties. How does he do this? Through his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, now look, don't miss this, that He might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God must remain just. What does that mean? It's a shortened term word for justice. The justice of God has to be satisfied in order for God to be God and to be holy and right. Are we understanding that? God can't just say, well, you know what, I'm in charge of everything, and you all have really blown it, but like a senile grandfather, boys will be boys, I'm just going to overlook it. God can't do that and remain God. He has to be just. But He is also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Not, not only is he, his standard not optional, and not only is it unmoving, he moved heaven and earth in order to meet the demands of his standard through his only son. This is the gospel. All of these three chapters have been, have been hammered. And what an opening to this church. Wow, it's like, I, I imagine they had a council meeting afterwards. Do we want to bring this guy or not? <laughs> I mean, he's really hurting our feelings. I had my students in their midterm exam. I said, I want, you to write, I want you to write a paper as if you were either a Gentile Christian or a Jewish Christian or a Gentile pagan and a Jewish moralist. Write a response to Paul's letter to you. Some of those were pretty telling. One in particular wrote, I, could, I had to determine that this was a, an unsaved, unregenerate Jew in the church, and he just lambasted Paul for this letter to the Romans. 
stating how righteous Jews were because of their following of the law, and he missed everything. But the kid understood this is how people might react to this message, and it's how we might react. We're not that good. God remains just, but he is also the justifier of those, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not works, faith. And it's not faith without works, it's faith that works. But it's faith. I am trusting in the righteous deed of another. His perfect life, his atoning death, he satisfied God's wrath, and now I can come to God and be justified. That's the gospel. And Paul finally gets here for these, these Roman Christians as they read this letter. Probably some of them with their mouths on their jaws on the floor. And then Paul's going to remind them in chapter 4. You know that guy named Abraham? And you Jews are pretty keen on him. Well, guess what? He's everybody's father. He's the father of the Gentiles, and he's the father of the Jew. And he's the father of all true Israel, those who put their faith in Jesus and repent of their sin. Because he was chosen. He was God's man while he was a Gentile. He received the promise. It was only later that he is circumcised and becomes a Jew. He's everybody's dad. You're all one family. Now start acting like it. Amen? Their sin united them, but really it was their Savior their, their Savior, that was their common bridge to accepting one another. And it's the same for you and I today. This is what we remember here. This beautiful promise in verses 21 through 26. God remained just. He didn't budge on His standard not one bit. Jesus absorbed every drop of wrath that God ever had against the sin of His people. For that we should be abundantly grateful today, and I hope you are. Amen? What do we do? We turn from that sin, we put our faith in Jesus, and we remember it. Do a little cup of grape juice and a wafer, and we're reminded of what's been done. Would you pray with me? And as I pray, you pray. You let God search your heart. We're going to take these elements here in just a second. Father, we come to you today thanking you for King Jesus, thanking you for a gospel that does not let the pagan sinner off the hook, doesn't let the moral... Do good or off the hook either, because all the good we can do is not good enough. And all the sin we can do is not bad enough to exempt us from your grace and your kindness through Jesus Christ. And we, we glory in that today. Jesus was the propitiation, the satisfaction of wrath. Through his blood, your word said today, his life satisfied your just wrath against all of our sin. And that's why you love us today. That's why you can stand the sight of us today. That's why, that's why when we come home from being stupid like the prodigal son, we don't get the back of your hand. We get a hug. We get sandals. We get a robe and we get a ring and a party. Because you have nothing left for us but your kindness and your love and your acceptance. Help us to accept that today. Help us to be grateful. Help us to remember well in this memorial meal your kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.